Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Last week in chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant was brought back to Jerusalem, and there was that whole issue where Uzzah, it was slipping, and he stuck his hand out, and God killed him. But it, it ends basically with the Philistines being defeated and David being in Jerusalem and kind of the nation's at peace. Saul's dead. The Philistines have been um, defeated. And so David is in his own home in Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant and things are, are going well. Now, this chapter has been called the Davidic Covenant based upon David, the Davidic covenant. Now, in your Old Testament, there are numerous covenants. There's the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant God made with Abraham. There's the Noahic covenant, the covenant God made with Noah. There's the Ten Commandments. There's a covenant made at Mount Sinai. And this is a covenant that God makes with David. And so what I want to do is I want to give some background heading up to the Davidic Covenant. Because before we get to this passage of Scripture, I want us to see... i to turn it on. I want us to see some Old Testament background, going all the way back to Abraham. Okay? So, back in Genesis, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And there's a lot of things that God promised Abraham. You remember God promised Abraham land. God promised Abraham a multitude of descendants. But one of the things that God promised Abraham in Genesis 17, 6 was, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. So even all the way back to Abraham, God promised that kings would come from Abraham. Now, we're also told that specifically the kings would come from the tribe of Judah. Now, was Judah the firstborn son of Jacob? He was the fourthborn, which is very interesting. So in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob is allocating and, and saying things about all of his sons, here's what he says about Judah. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion, it's cub, from the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. What's the scepter? The, the kingly rule. Okay, so the lion from the tribe of Judah, the king would come from the tribe of Judah. Okay, now fast forward to Moses, and God gives Israel instructions about how kings should operate. So I told you to turn to 2 Samuel, and I forgot. Actually, let's turn to Deuteronomy 17. I could have put it up on the screen, but there's a lot of, of 
This is a larger passage of Scripture, but it's very, very important because Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20 lays forth for us God's stipulations, if you will, for what a king should be. So the kingship is no surprise. It's not like there's a surprise that Israel's going to have a king. It was promised to Abraham. It was promised to come out of the tribe of Judah. And then there's even laws that God gives to Moses to tell them what type of king they are to have when they do take the land. So let's pick up in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who's not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. That's a very clear stipulation. There's a lot of things that a king, a king had to be from among Israel. He couldn't amass a bunch of chariots. He couldn't make the nation of Israel go back and rely upon Egypt. He couldn't accumulate a bunch of wives. But what's the most important thing about the king? He had to have his own personal copy of the Bible, if you will, the, the Old Testament law at this point, next to his throne, and he had to read the Bible every day, and he had to follow God's word. So God says, when you set a king up, make sure it's the one whom the Lord chooses. Make sure he's a godly man, and when he rules as king over you, he needs to have God's word as the source of his leadership. That's the ideal for the kings of Israel. So, let's just summarize this. What did God say about the future king of Israel? He will come from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will come specifically from the tribe of Judah. He will be a man after God's own heart, and he will be a man who obeys God's law. Now, who was Israel's first king? Saul, let me ask you a question. What tribe was Saul from? Benjamin. Did God appoint Saul or did the people choose Saul? The people. So let's go back and look at this. 1 Samuel 8, 7 through 9. Remember, Samuel is the prophet that was to anoint David. This is even before all this. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. 
according to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So what's God saying to Samuel? Let the people have what they want. If the people want their own king, God says, I'm going to let them have their own king. They've rejected me as king. So let's back up. Who's the true king of Israel? Yahweh, God. And God's basically saying to Samuel, hey, the people are going to follow the other nations around them. Let them do it. If that's what they want, let them do it. Now you may think, well, why did God do that? Well, God had a sovereign purpose in doing that. Sometimes, sometimes God gives people what they want. Think about America. I'm going off tangent right now. Okay, let's think about America. If America says, hey, we want to live as a culture without God, a godless, wicked culture, God may say, if that's what you want, go for it and see how things work out for you. I'm hands off. And that's kind of what he does with Saul. I'm hands off. And so what does the nation do? You keep on reading there in verses 19 through 20. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no. But there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. What was Israel's problem? We want to be like all the nations around us. And what was God's plan for Israel from the very beginning? You shall be a chosen nation, a holy nation, not like all the pagan nations around you. So Saul was not God's choice, but he allowed the people to choose Saul. Saul was not from the tribe of Judah. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was not a man after God's own heart. And because of Saul's treachery and because of Saul's sin, the Lord ripped the kingdom away from him and gave it to David. Now, who's the true king now? David. So what did Israel need? Israel needed most was a man who would himself keep the law of Moses and lead the nation into godliness. This would bring the blessing of Abraham, a land, a multitude of people living in rest with Jerusalem as the capital city. And so that's where we are now. David is the true anointed king. They're in the promised land. They're in Jerusalem. It's a time of rest. And then David begins to think about what he should do for God. So, in this passage of Scripture, there's many ways I could have taught this tonight. But I'm going to give you kind of the, um, this comes from the Reformation, especially from the Heidelberg. If you look at the Heidelberg Catechism, which is one of the big catechisms that came out of the Reformation, it's divided up into three big parts. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. That's how the catechism set out. And really that's the entire story of the Bible. Okay, think about it. Think about these three things. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Number one, guilt. We are all guilty before a holy God because of our sin. 
grace. God solved that problem by sending Jesus to die on the cross and rise again for us so we can have salvation by grace. Gratitude. Once we've been saved by grace, we live out the Christian life in gratitude for what God's done for us. Guilt, grace, gratitude. That's kind of the order of things in salvation. We start out guilty, God shows us grace, and then we live the rest of our lives in gratitude for what God has done. So we're going to see these three big ticket items, guilt, grace, and gratitude in the Davidic covenant in in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So let's first see guilt. So let's read verses 1 through 3. Okay, now we're back to 2 Samuel. Make sure you turn back there. We were in Deut- Deuteronomy, and now we're in 2 Samuel chapter 7. All right, here we go. Now when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Okay. Now where do we see guilt here? Why, David's not guilty. But let me, let me share with you gospel truth number one here. As guilty sinners, the only thing we can offer God is our hopelessness and helplessness. Can you give God anything? David has a bold intention here. He has a noble intention. What does he want to do? I want to build a house for God. David's thinking to himself, listen, I'm living in my own house. I've got my house. It's cedar. Okay, so back then it's like a built house. It's not a tent. The Ark of the Covenant, it's it's still in the tabernacle, the portable tent. And David thinks to himself, that's not fair. How come I, the king, get to live in a house with cedar, but yet God, who's in the tabernacle, is out there in a tent? I will build a house for God. Perhaps David felt a little guilty for living in a house when God was relegated, if you will, out to the tabernacle. So David's issue here is he thought God needed something that David could provide God. God's missing a house. I'll build God a house. As if God needs anything. Does God need David to build him a house? Notice the source of blessing here. Notice what it says. When the king lived in his house, the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. What had God done? God had blessed David. God had anointed David. God had saved David from all of his enemies. God had given David the Ark of the Covenant. God had given David Jerusalem. God had given him everything. So God was the source of everything David had in the first place. And so our greatest need, like David, is to understand that God has no needs. God doesn't need us. God doesn't need anything. Anytime you use the the sentence, I think God needs dot, 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 you're on bad territory because God doesn't need anything. So let's read some of these passages. Acts 17, 24 through 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need anything. We're the ones that need God. He's the one that gives us breath. He's the one that gives us life. He's the one that gives us salvation. And then Romans chapter 11, 34 through 36. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who's been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be glory forever. Amen. So God does not need a house to be built for him. In the same way, we're the guilty ones who are needy. As guilty sinners, the only thing we can offer God is our hopelessness and our helplessness. We can't do anything to earn God's favor. We can't do anything to pay back God, to offer God. Everything that we have to offer God, He doesn't need. What's our condition before God, before He saved us? Ephesians 2, 1-3. through 3. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So David thinks he can do God a favor. Okay, I'm going I'm to I'm pay God a favor. I'm going to build a house for him. And that's a great thing for David to think he can do, but ultimately when we step back, we have to realize, okay, we can't offer God anything. God is the one that does everything for us. But sometimes we flip the script, don't we? We think we've got to do things for God. So that's, that's guilt or our need. All right, the second thing we see in this passage, which is where we're going to spend the majority of our time on the next two, is grace. So let's read... Verses 4 through 17. And here's gospel truth number two. God overcomes our guilt with sovereign grace beyond our wildest dreams. Okay, so what's David's plan? I'm going to build God a house. And how does God flip it? Okay, so let's pick up in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people out of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. God interrupts David and says, David, you're not the one that's going to build me a house. In fact, I'm going to build you a house, not made of cedar, but I'm going to build you a dynasty of kings. And the major thing we said here, and I stress it every time I said God says, I will, I will, I will. The major thing we see here is David is not an active initiator, but a passive recipient. He's not told by God to do anything to earn these blessings. God just simply declares, this is what I'm going to do for you. David, you can't build me a house. In your wildest dreams, David, you can never repay me. I'm going to do some things for you. I'm going to show you grace. I'm going to do it. I have no needs. I'm doing this because I'm making a covenant with you. So we see five major blessings in this covenant. It's called the Davidic covenant, the, the covenant with David. What are the five blessings? Now, these are made specifically to David and his lineage. So God is speaking through the prophet Nathan to David and what God promises to do. Okay, But let's just back up for a moment before we look at these five promises because I want you to notice God's the one that put David there. Verse 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. I've been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies before you. David, I'm the one that anointed you. I chose you. I plucked you as a little boy out of being a shepherd, and I'm making you prince. Now, why does he use the word prince? Who's the true king of Israel? God. God's reminding David, you're just the prince over my people. I'm the true king. You're the earthly king, but I'm the, the heavenly king. So David, everything that you are, everything that you have is because I've been sovereignly gracious to you in your life. And now, because I've anointed you as king and I've brought you to this place, I'm going to give you some blessings. So here's the five blessings. Number one, God will give David a great name. Verse nine, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Do you remember back what God promised Abraham in Genesis 12? I will make you your name great. So David's going to have a great name. So let me ask you a question. When I say the word, oh, let's just pick an Old Testament. When I say Sennacherib and I say David, which one do you recognize? Okay, when I say Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, what are the, and Moses, who are the big names you hear in the Old Testament? Those guys, okay? 
So God's saying to David, you're going to be a big dude. Okay? Your name's going to go down in history like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, the great names. You're going to have a great name. And to this day, we all remember David. Okay, second blessing, I'm going to give Israel a home. Verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more. Let me ask you a question. From the time that God called Abraham to the time now, did Israel ever have a settled time where they weren't being attacked or they weren't wandering around? Abraham was always wandering around. Isaac was always wandering around, living in tents. Jacob always wandering around. Moses wandering for 40 years. They're always on the run. Okay, remember last week, what was the last thing to be captured? What was the, what was the, what was the last pagan nation that they couldn't drive out? Remember what I called the Jebusites? They could not drive out the Jebusites. They finally did, and they got Jerusalem. And so what's God saying? Okay, here's finally the place where you can call home. I'm going to plant you in the promised land specifically for the king. I'm going to plant you in Jerusalem. This is going to be the city of David. You're going to be at rest. You're going to have a permanent dwelling. You're not going to have to wander around in tents. You're going to have a permanent capital. You're going to have a permanent home for the Israelites. Okay, third blessing. I will establish for you a throne. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God's establishing the throne. Who established the throne beforehand? The people. Instead of the people establishing who's on the throne, what they did with Saul, God himself will establish David as the true king of Israel. Now, in a way, this should bring stability to Israel because God's the one that's in charge now. I'm putting my man on the throne whom I've chosen. Okay, fourth blessing. You will have rest and prosperity in the promised land. Let me ask you a question. Can you successfully build a temple if there's nations always warring against you and you're trying to fight them off? You possibly could, but it would be difficult. So God's going to give them rest in the promised land from their enemies to give them enough time to be able to actually build the temple. So they, they don't have these enemies come in. They're going to have a time of prolonged rest, a time of prolonged prosperity, a time for them to actually build God's dwelling place, the temple. And fifth, God will build David a house. Verse 11, From that time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. David wanted to build God a literal house. And God says, I'm going to make you a house. And David says, well, I already have a house, a house of cedar. No, you don't understand. A house. A code word for a dynasty, a kingship, established forever. Notice the forever language there, guys. Your kingdom shall be sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
Your kingdom shall be established forever. So this is an eternal promise made to David. When you see the word forever, what does that mean? Forever. Okay. So when God makes a promise that lasts forever, can it be broken? Okay. Hold that thought. Can things go bad? Yes. So here's the thing. Yes, God made these promises to David. And yes, they were unconditional promises that God is going to do this. And it's going to be a forever, eternal kingdom that God's establishing. But yet, there is a responsibility for the king. What do we read back in Deuteronomy 17? Is there a responsibility placed upon the king and how he should lead? Okay. Old Testament covenants often had conditions that the other party had to meet. Now, God does promise these things to David and Israel, but there are some things that David and future kings are responsible to do. The first thing they were responsible to do. Now, if we could, if we could go on and read the rest of the Old Testament, it would be great to just keep going. You will see how this goes royally wrong. The first thing they're supposed to do was to guard God's temple. And what do I mean by guard God's temple? They were to ensure that there was no idolatry. Notice what verse 13 says. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's talking about Solomon there, building a house. But notice he says, he'll build a house for my name. God's name is is of utmost importance. And so when God says, you're building a temple for my name, it's basically saying, this temple is going to be a place where the name of God is honored. The sacrificial system, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, all of that's supposed to go there. And so what the king was supposed to do there was to keep Israel's worship pure and free from idolatry. Now, obviously, there's the priesthood that has to do that. But as the king of the nation, you're the leader. You are to ensure that God's house and God's land and God's people don't give in to idolatry. All right. You, if you read the rest of your Old Testament, you, <laughs> you know how that goes bad. Second thing, so keep God's house. The king must keep God's law himself and rule remember back in deuteronomy 17 he has to keep a copy of that law close by so he can follow it himself and lead the people to follow it now what happens if one of the kings doesn't do this well god says look at what he says there verse 14 i will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. When he commits iniquity, when a king or one of your sons or grandsons, David, when he commits iniquity, when he doesn't do this, when he sins or leads the people to sin or doesn't obey my law, as a father to a son, I'm going to do what? I'm going to discipline the king. And how's God going to discipline the king? With the rod of men. He's going to allow other nations to come in and do things to Israel. What happened 
twice. Now, if you remember the history, we don't have time to go into this, but under Solomon's reign, Solomon's sons, because of the sin, the nation broke into two kingdoms, the north and the south, okay, civil war. Okay, the tribes in the north got taken into Assyrian captivity. They were overtaken by the king of Assyria. The southern kingdom was taken over by Babylon. For how many years? Seventy years. So because, and God, and God was patient because there was wicked king after wicked king, and finally God said, enough's enough. You have broken my law. You brought idolatry into Israel so much so that I'm going to discipline you by bringing in a pagan king to burn down the temple, burn down Jerusalem, and take you into Babylonian captivity some 900 miles away, and you'll have to stay there for 70 years. Now, we have a tension here because what did God say? It's an eternal forever covenant. So even though individual kings would rebel and incur God's judgment, he made an unconditional and eternal covenant with David that there would be a king on the throne. What did God promise to the Israelites when he delivered them out of Egypt? Right before he delivered them out of Egypt, when he came down to them and he heard their cry, God said to them in Exodus 6-7, I will take you to be my people I will be your God, and you shall know that I'm the Lord your God who's brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I'm going to take you out of captivity, and I'm going to make you my people. Okay, look at the, verdi- the, the, the wording of verse 9. I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies before you. I've been with you wherever you went. I'm your God. You're my son. I'm your God. You're my people. I'm making this covenant with you, David, and by extension, your, 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 your dynasty, and by extension, the entire nation of Israel. So this is the culmination going all the way back to God's promise to Abraham that there would be a king, a king from the tribe of Judah, a king that would lead the way that God prescribed to Moses in Deuteronomy 17, a king that would conquer the promised land, a king that would conquer Jerusalem, a king that would bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, a king that would rule as a time of peace where there would be God's man on the throne. So, so at this moment, this is one of the highest moments in Israel's history up to this point. Because what's happening God's people are living in God's land with God's true king who's going to lead them with true godliness. This was God's ideal from the very beginning, and here it is with David. Now, let's just turn, keep your finger in Psalm, I mean Psalm, keep your finger in 2 Samuel 7, and let's turn to Psalm 132, because Psalm 132 kind of gives some echoes of this. Psalm 132. Now this is not written by David, but it talks about David. It talks about what happened to David here. So this is a psalm reflecting on the covenant that God made with David. So it's, it's, it's always fun. I find it fun to go back and find a psalm that connects with what we're talking about in First and Second Samuel. So here's a psalm, Psalm 132. 
okay? A song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or go into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Okay, I'm not going to rest until I build God a house. Behold, we heard of it in Epaphra. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your son keeps my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, the son also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Just kind of a cool summary there of everything that we've kind of seen that God, the psalmist is looking back and saying, God made these promises to David, these eternal promises that David would be on the throne, God would build for David a house, there would be kings coming from David, and that the Lord has set up Zion as his resting place. Now, let's talk about the forever language. Every single king of Israel died and was buried. And you go back and you look at the kings of Israel, both southern and northern kingdom, the majority of them were wicked. Not many of them were godly. All the way up to even Jesus' time, who's the king? King Herod. Ultimately, in the Davidic covenant, Everything points to Christ. These are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. They're, they're made in the immediate context to David, but they have a future ramification finding their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. So, when there's a prophecy in Luke 1, 68-69, listen to the prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Talking about Jesus being raised up, being born as a servant of David. How does Paul start the book of Romans? Talks about Jesus in Romans 1, 3-4. Concerning his son who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was descended from David. Now, let's go back to Samuel and see how it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. God says, I'm going to build a temple, a structure, a permanent structure where I will live. 
Jesus claimed that he was the temple. John 2, 19-21. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Who's the true dwelling place of God? A physical structure that Solomon built? Or does it find its fulfillment in God in the flesh who came and dwelt among us? The full embodiment of God in the flesh, Jesus. Jesus claimed that he possessed an eternal throne. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus will sit on his throne. Trina, we just lost PowerPoint. I'm not sure why. And then Jesus claimed he would establish an everlasting kingdom. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is the king of the eternal kingdom who sits on the true throne of David, who is the true temple. Is Jesus. And the apostles in the book of Acts saw this, promised so in Acts 2, 29 through 32, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with him an oath that he would one day set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses. Now, that's a profound statement that you could have to sit and think about for a moment. Peter is saying David was a prophet that understood that when God promised him the kingdom, it meant Jesus ultimately would come and die and rise, rise again. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection. Now, these were very specific promises made to David. In sovereign grace. David, you're not going to build me a house because you can't offer me anything. The only thing you can offer me is your neediness. I have no needs. But beyond your wildest dreams, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you a tent. I'm going to have you, you know, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. You are going to have an eternal son on the throne out of your lineage forever. Beyond your wildest imaginations, David, this is how I'm blessing you specifically. Now, what has God done to us in His grace? God has shown us grace beyond our wildest imaginations in the gospel of Christ. What does guilt say? Remember guilt, grace, gratitude? Guilt says you were dead in your sins. You followed the course of this world. You followed Satan. You were a child of wrath. You were a sinner separated from God. Guilt. What does Ephesians 2, 4 say? Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But God, even when you were dead, you were wicked, you were a sinner, but God, being rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast sinner you think you can offer me something all you can offer me is your deadness and sin And beyond your wildest dreams, I'm going to make you alive in Christ and I'm going to show you immeasurable riches of mercy and I'm going to save you by grace alone when you don't deserve it. That's what I'm doing for you, God says to the guilty sinner. And so just like David was a passive recipient instead of an active initiator, it's the same thing for us in the gospel. We're not told by God to work or to earn or to do anything to somehow obligate God to save us. So what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God saves guilty sinners by grace through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And once God shows you grace, how should you live? What should your response to grace be? Well, I expected that. God owed that to me. What should our attitude to grace be? Guilt? Grace, what's the third G? Gratitude. Our response should be gratitude. And we see this in David. Okay, you've just, you've just heard God say these things to the prophet Nathan to you, David. I'm going to do, I'm going to do, I'm going to do. I'm going to do all these wonderful things for you. And so how does David respond? Well, David responds in gratitude. And you see the heart of David. So let's look at the third aspect, guilt, grace, gratitude. Let's continue reading to the end of the chapter. Let's pick up in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what's my house that you've brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes. O Lord God, you've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you've brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There's none like you, and there is no God besides you according to all that we've heard with our ears. And who's like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people? making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you've spoken concerning your servant, concerning this house. Do as you've spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God. Your words are true. You've promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, 
And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. But don't you just see the gratitude dripping, dripping from the lips of David there after God gives this to him? So gospel truth number three, God's sovereign grace should lead to a life of gratitude and worship. Now I want you to notice the repetition of something. Notice how often David says, oh Lord God. I started underlining it because I think, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times. At least maybe there's probably more. Oh Lord God. This phrase, O oh Lord God, does not show up anywhere else in First and Second Samuel. The only place it shows up is here in chapter 7. So why does David use the term, O oh Lord God? Is it just a way he calls God, O oh Lord God? Why does it specifically used here and only here in First and Second Samuel? Now it's used in another place in the Bible. It was used by Abraham when God made the promise to him. Remember what I said earlier? Who first got the promise that Israel would have a king? Abraham. Who first got the promise that God would make them a nation? Abraham. Started with Abraham. How did Abraham respond in gratitude when God told him this? What language did Abraham use? Well, in Genesis 15, 2 through 8, Abraham said, O Lord God. What did David say? O oh, Lord God. Same, same language there. What will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Abraham's language when God gave him promises was, O Lord God. I think David purposely uses that same language to tie back specifically to Abraham to show that it's come full circle. What you promised Abraham is now coming true in David, and David's using the same language that Abraham used. Oh, Lord God. And what does David have to do? Look at verse, after God, this is kind of funny actually, after God says this, what does David do? David Verse 18, then King David went in and sat before the Lord. He's so overwhelmed with God's sovereign grace that he sat before the Lord. Now, this, this does not specifically come from the text, but a lot of scholars and commentators believe that he probably went and sat next to the Ark of the Covenant. He got as close as he could be to where God was. Now, we don't know that, but I want you to picture in your mind God, picture in your mind David here. He's overwhelmed. I've just been, I've just been told that I'm going to have a kingdom. All I can do is I just have to go sit down. I've got to go sit down and worship. What's the first thing David does when God shows him grace? He prays a prayer of grateful worship. 
he pours his heart out to, O Lord God. He sits before the Lord in gratitude. So how does David respond to God's grace? Look at verse 18. Who am I, O Lord God? What's my house that you've brought me thus far? Who am I, God? I was just the youngest son of Jesse, a shepherd boy on the backside of nowhere in Bethlehem, and you're doing this for me? I don't deserve this. Who am I? Now let me encourage you with something. If you've truly been saved by grace, this should be your same attitude towards the Lord when you think about your salvation. There are times when you should pray to the Lord, Who am I, God? Why'd you save me? I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve your love. Why me? And that should lead you to grateful worship. So David here offers seven, it's a convenient number, isn't it? Seven attributes or reasons or ways that he's grateful for God's grace. So here we see, so let's just kind of backtrack it, the, the chapter started out with David saying, I want to build a house. I want to offer you something, God. And God says, you can't offer me anything because I don't need anything. You're the one that needs something. And then God makes this covenant with David, this eternal covenant. And then David just goes and sits before the Lord and pours his heart out. And we have these seven um, responses from the heart. So the first thing we see from David is he has an overflowing heart. Look at verse 21. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, You've brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. God has, I mean, not David has an overflowing heart. God has an overflowing heart. I misread that. God has the overflowing heart. God has chosen to bless David out of the overflow of his own heart. Let me ask you a question. Is God obligated to show you grace? Why does God do it? out of the overflow of his heart for lost sinners. What does God owe us? What is God, quote-unquote, obliged to give us? Hell. And not even just zero, but hell. Death. Damnation. And God says, because I love you out of the overflow of my heart, I'm going to show you grace. And that's what David says here. Verse 12, because of your promise and according to your own heart, It's interesting, David attributes this grace to God's heart. God, you have an overflowing heart of grace. Exodus 34, 6, The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, steadfast love is that Hebrew word, hesed. Don't say it out loud next to your neighbor, you might spit on them. If you want to say it the real Hebrew way, you say chesed. It's the, the tenacious, loyal covenant love that God has for us. Think about the overflowing heart of Jesus when he looked at the crowds. What did it say when Jesus looked at the crowds? In Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Sometimes it's beneficial to be like David. And just go sit down and think about God's love for you. I'm so overwhelmed by God's love, I just got to go sit down and think about it. Praise Him. 
Okay, second thing. Remember, there's seven, so we're on number two. God is great in power. Verse 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there's none like you and there's no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. You are great. Great. Psalm 91, 1-2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. We looked at this verse in staff meeting this week. Jeremiah 32, 17 through 18. Ah, Lord God. There's that word again. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them, O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Nothing is too hard for God. Can God do anything? It's a trick question. God can't lie. (laughs) Can God do anything? God is a God of great power. Nothing is too difficult for Him. So he's a God of overflowing love. He's a God of power. But then notice what David says there. Third, there is only one true God. Again, verse 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you. Sounds like the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods besides me. Isaiah 45, 21 through 22. Declare... And present your case to let them counsel together. Who told this long ago, who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Did you guys see that TikTok thing that's been going around? There's this um, gay pastor that, um, he's a young guy, and he um, has a TikTok that came out. Back in the summer, he had a TikTok that came out that said Jesus had to apologize for being a racist back during his day for the way he treated the, um, the Samaritan woman or something. But the new one, he says, and you can go look at it, he says, Jesus, in John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's like, well, Jesus was basically saying that he's one of many good ways, and he's a, he's a, he's a beneficial way, but he, Jesus would never say he's not the only way. And, and so... There are people out there that don't want to believe that Jesus is the only way or there's only one true God. Um, David believed it, and he's confessing it right here. You are the one true God. There's no other God beside you. Acts 4, 11 through 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. It has to be in the name of Jesus that we're saved as the only way, the only true God. Okay, fourth. God is our Redeemer. Now, David goes back in verse 23 and talks about the Exodus. 
Who is like you and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people? Redeem. This is the, uh, how did God redeem Israel? What does the word redeem mean? The word redeem means to buy out of slavery by means of blood. How did God buy Israel out of slavery by means of blood? The Passover lamb. The Passover lamb. Psalm 77, 13 through 15. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like you, like our God. You are the God who works wonders You've made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So in the Old Testament, God redeemed or bought the Old Testament people out of Egyptian slavery by means of the Passover lamb. How did God redeem us from spiritual slavery? By means of the Passover lamb, Jesus, who shed his own blood for us so that we would be redeemed. And Peter says that in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, once we've been redeemed, God preserves us. God keeps us safe. Look at verse 24. And you establish for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. They're your people forever. What did Jesus say about himself with his sheep in John 10, 27 through 29? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, God has redeemed you through Jesus. God keeps you. God shows overwhelming love out of his heart for you. God is great in power. God is the one true God. These are just wonderful things about who God is that David's praising God for. Fifth, God is true to his word. Look at verse 28. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. And you've promised this good thing to your servant. God, you're true to your word. Your words are true. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word of God proves true. Do you believe God's word, God's truth? Number sixth. Number sixth, sixth, or number six. Um, God showers us with blessings. Look at verse 29. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever. Bless. Shower us with blessing, Lord. We want your blessing. So, how has God blessed us? Well, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 1 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, what are some of these blessings, Paul, that we've been blessed with? Well, I'll go on to tell you. Verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Just as David called down a blessing upon God, upon his family, upon the the kingdom, upon the temple, upon his house, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Not necessarily every material blessing, but every spiritual blessing. Are you grateful for these blessings? And then seventh, and this is where it all hits, the, the, the rubber meets the road. God does all things for the glory of His name alone. Okay, look at verse 23. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be His people, making Himself a name? And doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeem for yourself from Egypt and a nation and its God. You made yourself a name. And then you look at verse 26, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. God does everything for the glory of his name. Why is God doing all this? Well, you could say God's doing this to bless David. Yes, but why is God ultimately doing it? For the glory of his name. Why does God save us? So we can go to heaven. Okay, but why does God ultimately save us? For the glory of his name. God does everything for his glory. Psalm 48, 11, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And then we know Philippians 2, 10-11, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So these seven blessings, David is overwhelmed because God showers him with grace. And he goes and he sits down. God, who am I that you do this for me? You are great. You have an overflowing heart. Your word is true. You've redeemed us. You're the one true God. You shower us with blessings. You, You do all things for your glory. He's overwhelmed by grace. So for us, grace should always lead to gratitude. We, like David, should be humbled to our knees that God would dare save us by Sovereign grace. So what are these three truths? These gospel truths that we see in this passage of Scripture? The GGG, the three G's, came out of the Protestant Reformation, kind of the way that they formulated guilt. As guilty sinners, the only thing we can offer God is our helplessness and our hopelessness. You can't offer God anything. David thought he could build God a house, and God says, you can't offer me anything. The only thing we bring to the table... Let me put it this way. The only thing you bring to God is your sin. The only thing you can offer Him is your sin and your guilt. Can't offer Him any good works, anything. Grace, the second thing. God overcomes our guilt with sovereign grace beyond our wildest dreams. God gave David more than what David expected. That's not what da- David went in thinking, I gotta, I'm going to build God a house, and God comes back to him and says, I'm going to give you an eternal throne. And then gratitude. How does David respond? The same way we should respond. God's grace 
should lead to a life of gratitude and worship. So as you think about these three things, just think about your own life. Have you come to that point where you know that you're guilty before a holy God? That you are helpless and you're hopeless and you can offer Him nothing? And then do you have that overwhelming sense of God's grace for you? That He saved you by grace. He showered you with grace. He's given you the blessing of salvation. He's overcome that. And then is the rest of your life not trying to pay back God for what He did, but Think about it this way. The rest of your life is a big thank you, a humble thank you of joy to God and gratitude for what he's done. You can never pay him back, but you live in gratitude. So like David, I think we need to do what David does. We just need to sometimes just go sit down and praise God and think about God. and, And do you rehearse or praise God for his many attributes of grace? I mean, we have seven here. I mean, I would encourage you, go back and read this chapter again and just maybe take the verses 18 through the end of the chapter and those seven things that David praised God for. Use that as a prayer guide this week. You've got seven days in a week. You can start it tomorrow. And say, tomorrow I'm going to praise God for number one and just spend some time praising God for that. Then number two. Or you can do them all on the same day. This is a template. You cannot go wrong by praying Scripture back to God. You're, you're praising Him. But I think a lot of times we can be ungrateful. We can be forgetful. We can be petty. We can be prideful. Sometimes we can have an entitlement mentality. We can think, God, God owes me. I've paid my dues. God owes me. And you get mad when things don't go your way. So don't get ever get over this fact. You are way more sinful and guilty than you could ever imagine. But God's grace is more awesome and powerful than you could ever imagine. Now, here's the difference between us and David. David, beyond his wildest dreams, did not know that from his lineage would come Jesus. He knew there was a Messiah that was going to come one day, but didn't know he would be born in Bethlehem didn't know he would be the son of David, the king of Israel. And so David is praying these things to the Lord, Yahweh, God the Father. We experience this because of Jesus, the Son. So this is all possible because of Jesus. And think about Jesus. He's the eternal king on the throne. He's the true son of David. He's the only shepherd king who can save you because of his death burial, and resurrection. He alone has the eternal kingdom. He alone has an everlasting dynasty. So here's the question. Will you bow before this king today? Admit I'm guilty, but you've saved me by grace, and so I'm going to live a life of gratitude to my king, Jesus. So, in the time left tonight, do we have any questions or observations or comments? Shauna. Yeah, why did God just directly give it to David? Um, Oftentimes, God would use prophets to be his spokesperson. 
And so even like Samuel was a prophet to speak to Saul. And so we really don't know exactly, I mean, God could have spoken it directly to David, but God's way of operating back then was often to have a man of God, a prophet, to be the mouthpiece of God to come and speak to the king. And if you, if you look at the rest of the Old Testament, there were prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Malachi, all these prophets, oftentimes, especially Jeremiah, they would come and speak to the king of Israel on behalf of God. And so you had three offices in the Old Testament. You had a prophet, a priest, and a king. And they, all, they were all anointed. Okay, so the prophet was anointed, the priest was anointed, the king was anointed. But they had different roles. Okay. The priest was to do the sacrifice. The king was to lead the people to godliness. But the prophet was to speak the word of God. Like a preacher. And so that's just how God set it up. Prophet, priest, king. Now, with that being said, prophet, priest, king, there was no one person in the Old Testament that had all three of those roles. Nobody was a prophet, priest, and king, except for Jesus. Jesus is the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. That's what Christ means, anointed one. Jesus is the prophet. Why is he the prophet? Because he spoke God's truth, but not only did he speak God's truth, but he is the word of God, the living word. Jesus is the priest. He's the one that offered the sacrifice, but instead of bulls and goats, it's himself. He offered up his body, and Jesus is the king. And so he fulfills all three of those Old Testament anointed roles as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. So I gave you more than you asked for, Shauna, but hopefully I answered your question. What else? Anybody Anybody online, Trina? Oh, something from last week. Okay, i gotta, I got to reel it back in. No. <laughs> Nancy, go ahead. How did they get the... Yeah, how did they get the ark on the cart in the first place without touching it? Well, half obedience is not full obedience. So probably they, like, they probably use poles. Here's what they probably thought. Here's probably what they thought about last week when they carried. Okay, let's just kind of let's 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 be men here for a moment. Okay, have you ever carried a canoe over your head, or like carried something big, or carried a boat? This is kind of heavy. I bet you those priests got it on their poles, started walking. This is kind of heavy. <laughs> probably be easier to put it on a cart and let the donk or let let the cart carry. The Bible doesn't tell us that, but somehow they had to have gotten it on the cart by not touching it because they would have been dead before they touched it and put it on the cart. I'm just kind of given artistic license, but I'm just thinking how men behave. It's kind of like the path of least resistance. If I have to carry it versus put it on the cart, I'm going to put it on the cart. They would have remembered, yeah. Yeah, or a priest would say, hey, dudes, don't stop. Keep going. What are you doing putting it on the cart? That goes against what the, the book of Numbers says. Yeah. Good question. <laughs> Anything else? All right. Well, let's pray. And let's spend some time just praising God in gratitude for all of the ways he's been gracious to us.
So, Father, thank you. We want to be like David. We, we, we want to just sit down before you in awe, in joy, in gratitude for the ways that you've showed us grace upon grace. Lord, you've overflowed your heart to us in immense love. You've shown great power to us. You are the one true God. You've redeemed us by the blood of Jesus. Your word is true. You've blessed us with every spiritual blessing, and you do all things for the glory of your name. And Lord, we need to be humble and grateful and just be in awe that you saved us. Lord, help us this week to have the attitude that David did. Why me? Oh, Lord God, why me? I can't answer that, but all I can say is thank you. Oh, Lord God, thank you for saving me. Oh, Lord God, thank you for showering me with grace. Oh, Lord God, I praise you. Lord, let that be our attitude this week. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.